The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So over the last um, number of weeks, I've been exploring some teachings on the Four Noble Truths. And last few weeks, we've been particularly looking at the Second Noble Truth, the truth of craving leading to suffering. And so just as a kind of, a, of an overview, the Four Noble Truths Basically, one of the fundamental teachings of the Buddha, uh, of the Buddhist um, understanding of how we get caught, how we struggle, how we suffer, and how we might be able to free ourselves from that suffering. Uh, the truth of suffering. That there is suffering, and that, that's the first noble truth. The second noble truth, that suffering is, arises with craving in the mind. And that it is possible, the third noble truth, it's possible for that craving to end. And when that craving ends, our struggles, our suffering ends, and we have peace. Although this peace that results is not necessarily what we might think of as peace. <laughs> you know, our, our ideas of what peace is, uh, I have some, it's got some, some views about it. Um, you know, we might think that a peaceful mind means that you know, we don't need to do anything or we don't need to take action. But this peaceful mind, this peaceful heart that is free from craving is actually very inspired towards action, an action that connects with the world and, and wants to um, create conditions in the world that support happiness, a deeper kind of happiness, not, not the, the kind of usual kind of happiness. And so this peaceful heart is not a non-active is not about just settling back. And so this freedom from craving doesn't lead to a passivity. It actually leads to a different kind of activity. Not reactivity, but maybe more, we could say, responsiveness in the world from a beautiful place, from compassion and wisdom and kindness and generosity and love and joy. And so this is the possibility the Buddha points to, this freedom from craving leading to this kind of peace and happiness. And that the, the fourth noble truth, that there's a, um, a path, a way, a, a, a set of tools that we can cultivate. We can shape our minds. We can cultivate our minds in this direction of freeing the heart and mind from this craving. And so this, uh, the craving is really, the, the, the craving leading to suffering is really a central kind of understanding that is... Um, a lot about what the Buddha pointed to in his teaching. How does this happen? Why does it happen? And so the, the second noble truth, the arising of craving is the arising of suffering. That was pretty um, elaborated in the Buddhist teachings in a, uh, a teaching called the teaching of dependent origination and I started to talk about this a couple weeks ago and so I'd like to continue exploring that. Last time uh, I, I framed it in terms of the habit of craving that we have. The habit of basically wanting things to be a certain way. Wanting things to be the way we'd like them to be. Our views, our opinions, our ideas about how we can be happy. are often based in this belief that things need to be a certain way in order to be happy. And so this is a, a real kind of shift in our minds that um, that peacefulness of heart that I was speaking of before does not need anything in particular in the world to be any way at all in order for that happiness to be there, in order for that kind of ease of heart to be there. 
So this is, this is hard for the mind to understand. Like, how can the heart be peaceful when there's injustice in the world? It's like that, that doesn't compute with our definition of what we think peace is. And so the, the understanding of a peaceful heart or an, a, a, the heart of non-craving, maybe we could say that, the heart of non-craving is this peaceful heart. The heart of non-craving has a completely different relationship to that world that heart seeing injustice does wish to take action, but not because of this craving that it has to be different in order for this heart to be peaceful, but more the peaceful heart is motivated to act to shift the conditions of the world, not for its own sake, but for the sake of all. And so this is where this is compassion. And so the Buddha talked about how this craving comes to be and how it might be possible to release it. And the teaching of dependent origination is really a description of the processes at work in our mind that lead to this habit of craving. And it is very deeply conditioned in all of us. It is a habit that is conditioned not only by our own kind of relationship to the world, our own habits, what we've done, how we have engaged in the world, this wanting things to be the way we'd like them to be. We, we tend to very naturally lean in to what is um, pleasant, want more of that, to lean away from what's unpleasant, want less of that. And that tends to shape our decisions, our actions, our choices, which perpetuates this cycle of, of this habit of craving. And so the, the, I, I'll just review in a kind of broad brush right now the 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 teaching of dependent origination, which is pretty, you know, it's a complex teaching, which is why I'm taking more than one week to go over it. (laughs) Um, It's got 12 links to it, 12 parts, 12 pieces that kind of shape each other. And it's about conditioning. It's about how is the mind conditioned towards this craving, towards this suffering, What are the things that condition the mind in that direction? So it's really a teaching about conditioning. When this happens, that happens. When this arises, that arises. When this ends, that ends. So it's it's that flavor of conditioning that's being spoken to in this teaching of dependent origination. And in terms of the conditioning of this habit of craving, the Buddha pointed to, the first piece the Buddha pointed to is ignorance is at the root not understanding. Basically, we could say it's not understanding that craving is suffering. We are so kind of seduced by the, um, the belief or the view of craving, that, that kind of view or belief in craving, that getting that thing, getting rid of that thing, that is where I'm going to find happiness. We're so seduced by that 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 just perpetua- perpetuates us. And we are not aware in that belief in that view, the view of craving uh, that I need that thing in order to be happy, I need to get rid of that thing in order to be happy, that unpleasant thing I need to get rid of, that pleasant thing I need to keep. And it's not just things, it's states of mind, you know, it's, it's, it's constructing how we are in the world, this movement towards pleasant, uh, pleasant experiences, not just having pleasant things, but you know, the pleasant experience of having somebody like us and having people believe about us what we want them to believe. And so this, the, the craving has that kind of push-pull around pleasant and unpleasant. And the belief that's embedded in there that having that thing, getting rid of that thing, will make me happy. That's this fundamental ignorance. And the, that fundamental ignorance, basically, it's like it's got a shroud around the craving itself such that we, while we are caught up in that belief, not only do we believe that that's what's going to make us happy, but we do not see that the experience of craving itself is suffering. That, that feeling of wanting to uh, have something be other than it is, when we start to look at that experience, as soon as craving springs up, as soon as that arises, we are already 
feeling like something is off. There's an offness in that experience in and of itself. And so craving is suffering. And this is this fundamental ignorance, the, the being caught in this view that craving leads to, you know, if I get this thing, then I'll be happy. If I get rid of this thing, then I'll be happy. This is this fundamental ignorance. And so this ignorance, actually I'll go through the rest more quickly. Just, this, is the, this is the kind of the, the engine, in a way, uh, of our um, habit of craving, is this kind of being caught in the view of craving and not seeing that craving is suffering. So that's the engine of our habit. And this, this um, belief, this view that we're all caught by, and it's, it's kind of a human thing to be caught by it in, in some ways. It's, it's not personal that we're caught by it. It's, it, it's, it's shaped by our cultures, our, our societies, our families, and our own experience in the world because we do tend to feel better when we get something that we want and get rid of something that we don't want. And so that tends to propel this cycle forward. So this ignorance leads to um, mental formations or ideas, views, beliefs, opinions, emotions that tend to propel us. So this is the second link. Ignorance leads to mental formations. And that um, shapes how we meet the world, shapes our consciousness, shapes our um, bodies and minds. And these are the next two links. So ignorance leads to mental formations. Ignorance conditions mental formations. Mental formations conditions consciousness, what we take in, what we are aware of. Those beliefs, views, ideas condition what we become aware of, how we relate to the world. That what we become aware, aware of and how we relate to the world shapes the rest of our mental and physical experience. And we'll go into this in a little more detail. And, and in that, we receive sense impressions. We have this body, we have this mind, we have sight, sound, smells, taste, touch, and those experiences contact our senses. So mental formations, conditions, uh, ignorance conditions mental formations, conditions consciousness, conditions mental and physical experience, conditions the senses, conditions contact. So we have our eyes, our ears, our nose, our tongue, and, and we receive input. So seeing And there's this contact. Sight leads to seeing. Some visual, the the contact, we can really think of it as contact. It's the contact of the light waves on our retina. Likewise, the contact on the ear, the sound waves hitting the eardrum. There's contact with our sense bases. And this is this next link. So having these these, uh, sense bases leads to this contact. And this contact... Every single sense impression that we experience has a quality of being either pleasant, unpleasant, or neither pleasant or unpleasant, neutral. And so this is sound, <laughs> maybe unpleasant. <laughs> this, this experience, this happens. Every single sense impression has this quality. Sometimes many of them are kind of neutral, and the neutral ones we don't tend to kind of land with too much. But many of them, you know, when we we, we can orient towards pleasant ones or unpleasant ones. So all of our sense experiences has this quality, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. And so this is the next piece, is that when we have this contact, we have this experience of feeling, Feeling tone, we can say. It's not emotion. It's just this very kind of bare um, quality of all experience. Every sight, every sound, every smell, every taste, every touch, every sense, everything arising in the mind. These are all of our sense bases in the Buddhist psychology. Six senses, the five physical senses plus the sense of the mind, the sense door of the mind. And there are arisings in the mind, emotions, thoughts, moods, beliefs, all of those are arisings in the mind, and that's considered to be a sense organ as well, a sense base as well. And so every single sense impression, whether it's mental or physical, has this feeling tone. 
Anger tends to be unpleasant. Happiness tends to be pleasant. Joy tends to be pleasant. Boredom, probably unpleasant. Sense contact, seeing um, the light and shadow on the tree may be pleasant. Hearing that blare of the horn may be unpleasant. So all this is, is just happening to us. But often, so this is this uh, contact conditions, feeling tone. This will happen. It's, it's, it's very natural for this conditioning to happen. With those feeling tones, in that it, the next movement in the chain of dependent origination takes us to where craving begins to enter, where craving begins to, to kind of get its hooks in us. Because based on that feeling tone, in a very you know, almost natural way for us as human beings, when something is pleasant, we like it, we want it, we want more of it. When something's unpleasant, we don't like it, we want to get rid of it. We want to push it away. Something's neutral, often we don't even notice it. And in that very simple movement that just sounds like, well, of course, if something's pleasant, I'm going to want it. If something's unpleasant, I'm not going to want it. Well, that very simple liking, not liking, wanting, not wanting is the, is the kind of the, the, the slope into craving. Because when we like something and we want it, this habit or this view, again, this kind of belief that need that thing in order to be happy, need to get rid of that thing in order to be happy, begins to kick in. And so this is when we are motivated or when we are caught by that ignorance, this is what will happen with our feeling tone. When we we experience feeling tone, we'll tend to move towards what's pleasant, want it, hold it, grab it. So this is where craving comes in, is around this relationship to the feeling tone of experience. And as we lean in to our experience, as we move towards pleasant, move away from unpleasant, this shapes the next aspect of of this habit of craving, which is clinging. So when we crave something, and we, we're like, yeah, that, that's what's going to do it for me. That thing, that's what's going to do it for me. That's the craving. And then the clinging is like picking it up. I'm going to take it. I'm going to hold on to it. I'm going to, it, it's like the, the clinging is where our mind kind of latches onto it as being, yes, this thing, this state, whatever it is, this is what I need and I've got it now. And with that uh, kind of latching onto in that way, I mean, the, the clinging itself also has a, has a kind of an unpleasant quality when we look at it. The craving, that, oh, need that, that's got a kind of a, a, an off feeling to it. When we look at it with mindfulness, we feel a kind of a, a stickiness and a kind of a constriction to it. With clinging too, The clinging has a tightness to it. Even the word, you know, holding tightly. You know, you cling, you clench your fist, you hold on to something like that, you're going to get tired. The fist is going to start to ache. And very similarly, in the mind, that holding takes energy and is, is, it's not a, uh, it's not an experience of well-being, we can say. It's, it's got a quality of, of painfulness. And so the clinging itself is painful. The craving is painful. The clinging is painful. But one of the pieces that kind of sends this whole cycle into uh, repeat mode is the next link, which is becoming, which we could say is um, identification, uh, taking birth as kind of the, I'm the one who has this thing. I have figured it out. It's this, you know, like, sense of control like to me that's a piece of it is in that moment it's like yes got this thing figured out how to get this thing know how to keep this thing and there's this sense of figured out how to control my life this is becoming this is a taking birth into the one who has this thing the one who uh, controls and it's that feels good 
that feeling of being in control is a mental quality. And it's kind of like it's a little bit of release in a way. It's like we got the thing. There's, there's the, uh, you know, the sense of, huh, figured it out. And so the, the becoming is a part of this process where it's like, oh, I'm okay. And the way that we've gotten there to that okayness is by having craved and clung. And yet, paradoxically, that very okayness is based on the unpleasantness of craving and clinging. And so this, this kind of, this propels the cycle forward. Um, we, uh, we get, you know, it's like we, we have something or we, we see something pleasant. So something pleasant, we like it, we want it, we want to move towards it, get it. And so knowing or recognizing that the craving and the clinging are painful, the having itself the, the, the having and the sense of got this thing, that being pleasant, is pleasant for two reasons. And it, it, some of it is the sense of control, um, the sense of the having itself is pleasant. You know, that, that, that association with what is loved, dissociation from what is not loved, that's, that's got, got a pleasant quality to it. It's like we, we've, we've got the thing that we want. So there's that, that proximity to the pleasant or the separation from the unpleasant. That itself has a pleasant quality to it also. And so that kind of reinforces that, okay, when I get what I want, so you know, we, we take some action, we get what we want, and there's a feeling of, ha. Huh, that, that sense of control, and I've got it, and I've got this thing. But the other big piece of the, um, the pleasantness that comes with that is that the feeling of craving momentarily goes away as we get something. We've got that thing, and the feeling of craving is like, ah, oh, it can release. You know, something simple like, you know, the craving for some piece of chocolate or something. And we have the piece of chocolate. And for a few moments, we no longer crave it because it's there. And so the having itself brings some measure of pleasantness. But the release from the craving, when we see this, when we start to really look and, and explore and open to the 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 experience in the moment of craving itself and of what it means for craving to release, that release of craving is by far the biggest piece of happiness, really. And that is what we are going for. We crave for something and get it, and then the craving releases and we're happy with that release of craving. Only our craving has told us, no, we're, we're not happy because craving has gone away. We're happy because we have the thing. So that's, again, the kind of delusion or the ignorance in craving is that belief that the having is what's creating the happiness. But a big piece of the, of the sense of okayness comes because we're no longer caught in that field of the craving in that moment. So the craving has released and so we have that sense of becoming a control, that sense of got this, want this, you know, have this thing, so that becoming. And that becoming, that sense of control, that having that thing, that is impermanent. It is unreliable. And it will end because of the nature of the world. And so very naturally, that sense of control will fall apart, the sense that having the thing will fall apart at some point, maybe sooner, maybe later, and the next link in the chain follow, well, but the next link in the chain following becoming is birth, which is this full-blown, I have this thing, I am in control. And then following that is 
once, once there's been the arising of something, anything, there will be the decay of that. And this is the next uh, link in the chain, is this aging and death. So with the arising of something is going to be the ending of it. And the Buddha says that with that comes the entire mass of suffering. This is kind of where the suffering just gets full-blown. And we can see this as we, you know, as we lose things. When we, when we lose things, when, we, when things break or when we misplace something or, or leave it somewhere and can't get it back. I mean, there's a, there's a feeling of, of loss there. Sometimes stronger, sometimes not as strong, depending on how strong the craving was, how strong the attachment was. The suffering is directly related to the strength of the attachment, the strength of the craving. We will suffer more the stronger the craving, the stronger the attachment. But this also has to do with, you know, this is also about the, the kind of taking birth into an identity. You know, for myself, I, I, I had this kind of flip-flopping identities between I'm the one who, you know, I, I'm good at things. I can get things done. I know how to do whatever it is, meditate, whatever. You know, I, I'm a good meditator. I do this really well. Maybe I'm like even the best meditator in the whole room. You know, the whole kind of congealing of an identity around being a meditator. And then, you know, a few minutes later, seeing the mind wander and realizing how hard it is to stay with the present moment, it's like, oh, I must not be the best meditator in the room. In fact, maybe I don't even know how to do this. And flipping between these identities, so much suffering taking birth into that identity. I'm good at this. Leading to this collapse of that identity. And I'm bad at this. I'm a failure. Flip-flopping between so much suffering in that. So much suffering. And so the, um, this, uh, this collapse of this, you know, when we, we, we end up in suffering, we end up in that. It's like our mind, our mind kind of searches at that point. You know, the Buddha actually says that suffering leads to bewilderment, confusion, or to search. And that search can lead us in the direction of the path, actually. It can begin to head us in the direction of searching for a different way to relate to suffering. But often that search leads us to, well, when was the last time I felt good? Well, it was when I had something that I wanted, so let me see if I can find something to want. And we find ourselves basically wanting to want. Joseph Goldstein called this catalog mind. This is dated now. I think we could call it Google mind now. You know, catalog mind, he, sa- he said, you know, just, just notice the way your mind is when you pick up one of those mail order catalogs that you get. If you start flipping through it, it's like, nope, nothing I want on that page. Oh, maybe the next page, you know, a little bit of like leaning in. May- oh, maybe there's something I'll want on the next page. Just wanting to want. And Google mind, you know, that, that whole you know, kind of addictive quality of, of Google really kind of feeds with this cycle of dependent origination. Like we have instant gratification of something we want to know. This isn't even getting something, something tangible. It's like wanting to know something, you know, have some piece of information, type in the thing. Boom, we get the, the answer. There's a little bit of a hit of pleasure of that. It's like, and, and I, it's, I have found myself sitting in front of that computer. It's like, what do I want to type in? You know, what do I want to know so that I can get that little moment? of happiness. So this is, this is this cycle repeating itself, is that because of that ignorance, because of that kind of um, belief in the mind that having what, ha- that following through on that craving is what's going to lead to happiness. Our mind doesn't have any other idea of any other way to happiness while it's caught in that mode. And so 
the thing falls apart and it's like, okay, well, the last time was when I got something that I wanted, so let me get that thing. Let me get the next thing. Let me find the next thing to want. Just sending us right back through this cycle. We get that thing. There's a moment of like okayness, a moment of ah, figured it out, control, then that, of course, of nature will fall apart and then we're back in this cycle. And so the... It sounds kind of hopeless in a way, and it, 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 it is kind of driven by our habit of craving. It's driven by this ignorance around craving. And so the, 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 the teaching really points to beginning to understand this ignorance. And with that possibility, with that possibility of understanding that ignorance, this whole chain can lead us in another direction. And I'll talk about that maybe um, later, but I want to come back to these first few links in the chain because those are the ones that kind of went through a little more quickly. Um, So suffering, as the Buddha said, leads to ignorance or to search or or bewilderment or search. And so this perpetuates this cycle when we're suffering and we don't have an understanding about this mechanism or this way that craving kind of is fueling our suffering. We're believing that craving and getting what we want is, is somehow making us happy. And we do get a little bit of happiness from that do get a little bit of happiness from that. But what the Buddha points to is that it's not the best kind of happiness that's out there. In fact, it's the least kind of happiness that's possible for us as human beings. That association with pleasant, the getting rid of unpleasant. And so it is a kind of happiness. And so he's pointing us to the possibility of a different kind of happiness. But this ignorance is so powerful. And so I want to like explore a little bit these first few links of how ignorance again shapes our experience because we start you know we start with our mind and body we we take in information you know the the place where it's easiest to kind of connect with this teaching on dependent origination is like yep i got eyes i got ears i got nose yep taking in sensation yes pleasant unpleasant and oh i do see how there's this craving how this craving begins. And so that, that's, that we can kind of begin to recognize how that part works. So the, uh, but, but the whole cycle being driven by ignorance, so that ignorance of, of craving, the ignorance of craving being suffering, the, the delusion of that whole thing. Based on that ignorance, that shapes what our choices are, what we decide to do, how we decide to engage in the world. This is ignorance shaping mental formations. And so the beliefs, the, the view of craving shapes our choices, our engagement in the world. It orients us towards looking for things that we want. That's, that's, you know, sitting in front of the computer saying, well, what do I want to want? That's that shaping of, of ignorance shaping our, our mind, our mental formations. And so the mental formations uh, are, that's a part of our um, mind and body process that are the beliefs, the views, the ideas. It's pretty much all um, activity in our mind includes emotions, it includes uh, ideas and beliefs, thoughts. And so the, the, the shaping, the mind of need to have something in order to be happy, that shapes our choices, our beliefs, our views. Also what shapes those, it's not only just that simple view of, you know, it's just that simple kind of um, uh, idea about craving, having something will make me happy. That's all reinforced because mental formations are shaped not only by our own experience, our own kind of connection with how we've engaged in the world, but our mental formations are shaped 
by our families and our cultures and our society. We are not independent in this world. Our views, our opinions, our ideas are really not our own. They have been kind of taken in by being almost absorbed through how we've engaged in the world. And so this is a big part of where mental formations come from too. Kind of almost as a collective um, views and opinions shaping us. So it's not only what we experience directly in the world that shapes our views and beliefs and ideas, but it's what we've been basically immersed in. It's like the stew or the what, what we've been marinating in, the views, the ideas, the beliefs, what television gives us, what the internet tells us, what our parents have told us, what our friends tell us. That all shapes these mental formations. And this is very powerful. These collective formations are very powerful. And what often we are, another piece of the ignorance is we are unaware of just how powerful those views are and how shaped we are by them. In fact, we often don't even recognize that they are views when we uh, are so immersed in views from our culture or from our families. Part of the ignorance that's shaping this is that we just assume these views to be truth. We're assuming and taking our perspective on experience to be truth and to be the way things are. And that's a huge form of ignorance, that we don't see our perspective as a perspective. And so this ignorance shaping mental formations and those mental formations then shape how we engage in the world. What, our cho- what, what, what happens to us? How we meet the world? And these collective ideas, beliefs, views, we're really, I think, really seeing this so clearly right now. The, the, the divisions in our country right now are so, it's, it's, like, it's just such a clear demonstration of views contrasting views and how the uh, holding to those views as reality, as truth, opposing views held to as truth, then there's no place in the middle to meet. So there's a lot of suffering that arises by holding to views as truth. And so we, we know this. We can see how much suffering comes from this. And then because of our mental formations, because of the, the shaping of our minds, our views, our opinions, our ideas, our agendas, what we think is important to do, the next link is those mental formations shape what we are aware of, what, are, what we are conscious of. They shape consciousness. Now we tend to think that what we see, what we hear, what we smell, what we taste, is, it's just the bare experience. You know, we think we're kind of neutral receivers of experience. That our eyes are kind of like cameras, our ears are like microphones, just taking in, receiving the sound waves, receiving the sight waves. And that's not quite the way our minds work. And in fact, it's a good thing. It's not the way, that's not the way our mind works because we would be overloaded with information. And so our minds have this capacity to kind of select information out of the field and become conscious of certain things and not other things. And this is useful. You know, it's like If we are trying to do something that requires some focus, to, to have some task to, you know, orient to, to doing something, it's useful to be able to focus and set other things aside. Psychologists call this selective attention. 
We can, we can narrow our field of attention and not know other things. And that's really useful, especially when we are consciously engaged in an agenda, doing some particular task. We can focus on it. Some of us have more skill at that than others. When I was a kid, this was a capacity that I seemed to have. I mean, I, I would get absorbed into what I was doing. And um, my my parents would be calling me for dinner and I wouldn't hear them. My dad had to come up to me and actually physically touch me in order to break into that absorption. So, you know, that this is, this is, a, this is a capacity that our minds have to kind of filter out what's not being attended to. Shaped by our agendas, our perspectives, our views, our beliefs, we focus on things, we orient to things. Now, when we do that consciously, it can be extremely useful. But that mechanism is happening all the time. Based on our views, based on our beliefs, we are taking in certain things and not taking in other things. And we tend to take in things that confirm what we already believe. We tend to take in things that support our agenda. And we tend to not notice things that do not confirm our agenda or, or support our views and our ideas and our beliefs. And so this very natural function of mind, again, this, this natural function of being able to narrow down and, and orient and say, yep, that's what I'm paying attention to, screen other things out. We are unwittingly being driven by that selective attention based on whatever mental formations, whatever views, opinions, ideas, beliefs we have formed through our experience, whatever views, opinions, ideas, beliefs have been absorbed through our cultures, whatever we are taking to be the way reality is, that's how we see reality. And this is Again, it's got two sides to it. It can be very useful. But if we aren't aware this is the way our mind works, that we are not taking in experience just as it is, this is ignorance. You know, that we're not, we're not aware that we are not seeing things exactly as they're out there. So this is a huge bit of ignorance too. This, this kind of belief that I'll, I'll repeat, I'll, t- I'll talk about this. I've told this story so many times. Most of you have probably heard this, but I'll just briefly mention this, um, this study about the, the gorilla and the basketball. <laughs> um, um, there was a study where they um, asked people to participate in watching a video, and they were told that the objective was to count the number of times the basketball passed between the people in the white shirts. And they could do that. Mostly they could do that. They were asked at the end how many times and they, could, they got the answer. Um, some, and then at the end, some people kind of were like, well, gee, was there like a gorilla, a guy in a gorilla suit that went through that video, that went through the basketball players? And, and, and there had been, there had been this guy in a gorilla suit that had walked through this whole scene of the basketball passing. And, had been very obviously right in the middle of things. But many, many people, about half, do not see the gorilla. Now that itself is not necessarily a problem because you're orienting, right? You're focusing. You've got a task to do. But what I found kind of more stunning, and we're re- real, the, the point of this that I'm telling now is that some number of people, some number of those people that didn't see the gorilla, like about, you know, 25% of them or something, said to the experimenter when they played the video back, so, yep, there's the gorilla, you know. 25% of the people said, that can't be the same video. I would have seen the gorilla. That is ignorance. That belief that we would have seen everything that our senses are perfectly recording what's going on out there. 
So that's where we really need to be careful. Our views, our agendas, our perspectives so much shape what we take in that we almost cannot be meeting experience in a neutral kind of just, uh, you know, sense bases are receiving impressions kind of way. And so here we are back at this point in the cycle where we have our, our senses receiving, meeting, contacting experience. And we see it is not just sights coming in. It's sights that have been pre-selected based on our views and opinions and ideas. And so this cycle has a very kind of... I mean, when we hear this, when we begin to get this, it's very humbling. It's very humbling to see this is the way our mind works. And yet the, the teaching here is not to just simply have us like feel like, oh, this is hopeless. What the Buddha pointed to is understanding this cycle, understanding how this craving works, understanding that, understanding that our views are views, that we don't see things perfectly accurately. Those understandings help to uh, shape the mind in a different way, help to begin to release these um, habitual patterns. It's kind of habitual tumbling into this habit of craving. The habit of craving is just that. It is a habit. It is not hardwired. It's a very strong habit, but it is possible to change that habit. And the primary uh, thing that needs to happen is the understanding that understanding around that ignorance. The whole cycle of dependent origination is kind of the linchpin of that cycle is the ignorance. There's a way in which these links, we and talked about it as conditioning, you know, the, the, the way it's described as ignorance conditions mental formations. Mental formations conditions consciousness and conditions our body and mind. Feeling tends to condition craving. Feeling will condition craving when ignorance is present. Craving will lead on to clinging when ignorance is present. And so it is the ignorance that really is the the thing that we need to begin to be curious about. But we can be curious about it anywhere. Whatever is happening in the moment, we can be curious about what's this experience because often the, the mind is, again, shrouded by its beliefs and views, often around what, where happiness comes from. And if we can begin to be curious about what's actually happening right now, what's arising right now, what's the experience of the craving, what's the experience of anger, what's the experience of frustration or, or irritation, that turning towards is the beginning of not being uh, clouded or obscured in the, the ignorance of those states of mind. Believing that somehow those, like when I, was, when I was caught in anger, I believed that I needed to follow that anger in order to be happy, that the anger had the solution. And the... Um, the turning towards the anger is a completely different relationship. It's not assuming the anger has a solution. It's looking at, well, what is this experience? And feeling that, wow, that anger is suffering. That craving is suffering. That's the beginning of breaking that bubble of delusion and ignorance around what it is that we think makes us happy. And, and our minds, as they begin to see this, you know, there's a very, um, we're very fortunate. Well, it's, both for, it's, got, it's a double-edged sword. It's both fortunate and unfortunate the way our minds work. I mean, our minds do kind of naturally orient us in the direction of well-being. Our system, our organism wants to move towards well-being. But the way the rest of our system works, 
being kind of mediated with views and ideas and beliefs and agendas. You know, as human beings, we've got a lot of choice, a lot of agency. Unlike, um, you know, uh, uh, many other creatures in this world that basically, you know, they are more conditioned by their... uh, whatever their genetics are, you know, that, that, the, that they, they have less choice about how they survive. We have so many choices about how we survive. And so that movement towards well-being, the, the views, the ideas about how to get to well-being begin to shape that direction. And in general, craving's a big part of that shaping. And so... Craving, ignorance, is kind of clouding the mind in terms of, well, what well-being actually is. Craving has confused the mind into believing that this satisfaction of craving is well-being. It's the best it can get. That's what that craving believes, and that's kind of what our system, our system has this movement towards well-being. But because of the views that are obscuring, the ignorance that's obscuring, what well-being actually is, we just end up on that cycle, that cycle of the habit of craving. And yet, if we start to look at what is the experience of craving itself with mindfulness, mindfulness is amazingly powerful. It brings in, essentially what happens there is that the system, our system begins to see directly that the craving itself is not well-being. And so our mind begins to get a different education. And it begins to see it's been deceived by craving. And so the mechanism that wants to lead us to well-being operates with that bit of information. Craving is not the way to well-being. And our system begins to orient in a new way in a new direction towards releasing that craving. And now it's time to stop. So, sorry I don't have time for questions. (laughs) Thank you for your attention.